Paul as he did at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3, he has a rabbit trail that he'd like to take us down. The good news is he's not going to dedicate 14 verses to doing it, or 13 verses, or however long it was at the beginning of chapter 3. This is a very brief rabbit trail that he only, uh, it only takes him two whole verses to do. And he takes us down it because he thinks it would be great for us to see not only something about the character of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he's, he's re-emphasizing, re-emphasizing, he is hitting the, the, the hammer with more stokes on the legitimacy and the grounds and the right for the Lord Jesus Christ to give gifts for his church. That's the big picture idea. Paul wants you to see Christ's inherent right due to his ascension to give his church gifts. But while he does that, while, while he is aiming to do that, he is also giving us reason to consider the person and the work of Christ not only in acquiring that right to give gifts, but to, but to consider what it cost him to acquire that right. What did it cost the Lord Jesus Christ to, be, to get to the position, to be in the position to give such wonderful gifts to his church? To be, what, what did it cost Christ to become our generous victor? Well, Paul has some things to say about that. And so we'll consider first the lowliness of his dissension, the lowliness of the Lord's dissension in verse 9, and then the loftiness of his ascension in verse 10. Let's read what Paul says. And, and the, the fact that verse 9 and 10 are in parentheses, that's the translator's attempt to show you, hey, you know, Paul is diverting. He's taking us just on a, on a parenthetical thought. So Paul says, now this is expression, he ascended, which he listed in verse 8. What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. First we we consider the lowliness of the Lord's descension. Paul says, now, now this, expre- this expression, which, which I mentioned just, just, just a second ago, he ascended. What, what does that mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Paul is not asking a question and expecting your input. He, he's raising this question so that he can immediately tell you what he means. He, he immediately has something to tell us about Jesus. And it is that Jesus Christ descended to the earth. For him to ascend into heaven, which he said in verse 8, for him to ascend into heaven to give gifts, he first had to come down from heaven. 
because one cannot ascend to where they already are. You can't go to some place while simultaneously being there. I can't say I, I can't say I'm going to Sam's Noodle Town while I am at the same time simultaneously, in fact, there at Sam's Noodle Town. He descended, he left heaven in the incarnation, in taking on human flesh and becoming a man, becoming one of us, and having come down from heaven to earth, he was then able to defeat sin, death, and the devil in ascending to back up to heaven from earth. And, and in that ascension, after his descending, in that ascending, he is then our triumphant and generous victor. So are, are you tracking with Paul's argument here? Now, did you realize that Paul's argument presupposes the deity of Jesus? To presuppose that he was already up in heaven is to presuppose his deity. When Paul took Psalm 68's picture of, of God triumphantly ascending and he applies it to Jesus, he's saying Jesus is that one and the same God. He is the Yahweh of Psalm 68. And he was saying that Jesus, in giving gifts to the church, he, uh, and, and, and he's saying that Jesus has done this very same thing before with Israel, only now he's done it again on a greater and much more significant, much more meaningful scale. <coughs> and giving all manners of gifts to the church. And in saying that he has done it again, there's this logical implication. He is one and the same. He is the, the Yahweh. He is the Lord God of Psalm 68. And being that same God who, who Scripture testifies again and again and again dwells and resides and rules for, him, for heaven. In order for him to ascend up to heaven, there has to be a period where he, is, where he has descended from heaven. He had to humble himself in the lowliness of what theologians call the incarnation, the taking on of human flesh, he had to descend before he could ascend. Now, there's no shortage of skeptics who will say that I don't know where Paul's getting this from. I mean, Jesus, didn't certainly, Jesus certainly didn't claim to be God. He never did. And this was something, this was something he never said. It wasn't something that the original apostles taught. This is Paul being a maverick apostle. He's going off on some rogue charter after, long after the Jesus movement began to pick up steam. This is Paul doing something novel, something new. However, the fact that Jesus Christ is divine, that he is the God-man, not an angel, not a demigod, not a not a halfway fusion or a concoction of, of part God and part man, but fully God and fully man at the same time, my friends, this is a repeated, this is an often repeated teaching of the New Testament. Matthew 1, 20 and 21 says that the angel, the angel says that the child who will be conceived, and right there, that, that is, a, that is a, 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 an allusion or a hat toss to his humanity. The child who will be conceived, the child who will be born as men are born, 
He is conceived of the Holy Spirit. There's the hat tip to his divinity. Mark 1, 1 plainly says at the four, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And to prove Mark's thesis, Mark provides account after account of Jesus doing things only God can do. Mark 2, 7 and 8, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has the authority to heal a paralytic. Jesus knows the personal and private thoughts of those watching him. And these things, particularly the authority to forgive sins, this isn't lost on the people who are watching him because the very thoughts that Jesus is reading, like an open book, are, who, who does this guy think he is forgiving sins? What, what do they say? Who can forgive sins but God alone? At the end of Mark 4, Jesus is asleep in the boat. There's a hat tip to his humanity. When a mega storm hits, a, a gale of, of unexpected magnitude, so intense that trained seasoned fishermen are fearing for their lives, rowing at the, at the oar with white knuckles. Jesus wakes up, he speaks to the wind and the sea, and in, his, in an instant, it faster than the blink of an eye, there is a where there was once a mega storm, Mark says there is now a mega calm. Absolute tranquility on the surface of the Sea of Galilee. In, in an instant. And they say, rightfully, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Implied answer, he is God. Jesus heals the legion in, in Mark 5, whom no man could bind with chain and fetters. He heals a woman with a 12-year-old hemorrhage whom no man, no doctor could heal. Coincidentally, Luke leaves that out of his account, being a physician. Jesus, the, 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 the writers of Scripture are human authors. Anyway. Jesus gives, his li uh, gives life back to Jairus' 12-year-old daughter. The, the, the restoration of life, resurrection. These are things God does. Jesus likewise gave life back to Lazarus, who had been undeniably dead for four days. Jesus also laid down his life. He died the most unusual death by crucifixion. What, what was unusual about it? He was silent. He was meek. He was restrained. Uh, he didn't accept the alcohol which would, or the strong drink which would have deadened the pain. He, he, didn't, he didn't accept the alcohol that every other crucified victim would have taken. He, and then at the very last second, when even the strongest of men could give out only a whimper, he yells like a strong man, completely catches the centurion off guard. In the centurion's profession, surely this man was the Son of God. And then he takes his life up again, just as he told other, others that he would. Again and again and again, Jesus does things that normal men cannot and do not do, but God men can. And so there's really no shortage of gospel passages that teach us, that, that, that state 
Jesus is God in the flesh. And there is no gospel that so clearly teaches this, this as the gospel of John. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And this construction, with God, has the idea you're not just with someone in the same room, but you are alongside them. You are, you are face-to-face with them as, as equals, as peers. The Word was equal to God, and the Word was God. Verse 3, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing was made that came into being. Which means you could search... You could search far and wide and you will not find a single thing, a single molecule, a single atom that does not have the Lord Jesus Christ's fingerprint on it. Not a single thing that exists came into existing without him making it. He is he himself is not a created being. He is uncreated, he has always been. And then John even records Jesus asserting and claiming his deity using the same terms we have here in Ephesians 4, 9, and 10. In John 3, after talking about the necessity of being born again to, to see the kingdom of God, Jesus gives his, his credentials. He, he, gives his qualifi- he cites his qualifications to to be one worthy of educating Nicodemus, who himself was the teacher, the teacher of Israel. Jesus cites his, his grounding to educate Nicodemus on matters concerning heaven. In John 3:13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And those of you who are familiar with your Gospels know this was Jesus' favorite title for himself. So he's not talking about someone else, he's talking about himself. He says he's the only one who has descended and will ascend into heaven. No one else, no one could claim that they've gone up in a hot air balloon and taken a look around and have come down to, to talk about it and tell man a thing or two about what up, what's up there. Not one of Nicodemus's associates were, were qualified to talk about heaven and heavenly things because, you know what, not a single one of them had been there. No Pharisee, no Sadducee, not the, not the teacher of Israel, not an elder, not a wise man, not a sage, not a scribe could speak of heavenly things because they hadn't been there. That couldn't be said about Jesus. Jesus could talk about heaven. He has every right to educate others on heavenly matters because he had been there and he was personally acquainted with the kingdom of heaven because when he spoke about heaven, you know what? When he spoke about heaven, he spoke as one who, sp- who speaks about his own home. I could, I, could tell, I could tell you a thing or two about Albuquerque. And it wouldn't be too long before Charlie would say, you know what, I, I don't think he's been there. You know why? You know why Charlie would be qualified? I don't, where'd Charlie go? I'm even, oh, there he is. You know, Charlie, why are you qualified to correct me when I speak incorrectly about Albuquerque? Why are you qualified to say, Aaron, I don't think he's been there? Yeah, 
You live there. I even tried writing Albuquerque out. I don't even know how to spell it. (laughs) Alba, period, New Mexico. Jesus, Jesus was qualified to speak of heavenly things because he was speaking of a place where he had resided. John 6.33, the bread of heaven is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And so the Jews, I would say appropriately say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, give us this bread and give it to us always. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who thirst uh, he who believes in me will never thirst now now why 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 is it that whoever comes to Jesus and receives him and believes in him will never hunger and thirst because as he said he is the bread of life he is purporting to do for the soul what bread what natural bread does for the natural body Verse 33, he he repeats that he has come down from heaven. Verse 38, he, he says again, for I have come down from heaven. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me. Being sent implies that there is a there is a point of origin. There's a source of origin. You there is a departing departure place that you have come from. Jesus wasn't raised up from among men of the earth. He was sent. To the earth. He was sent from heaven and that's why he was on the earth. We see in verses 50 and following more references to being bred from heaven. More references to being sent. But I want you to look at verse 61 if you're there in in John 6. Jesus' words are, are hard to understand. They're causing the Jews to stumble. And so Jesus says in verse 61 and 62, and I'll paraphrase, you think that's hard to accept. This is, this is difficult for you. What are you going to do if, if me coming down is difficult for you? What are you going to do when you see me going back up? If my descending is causing a, a problem for you, what is my ascending going to be? Now, if Jesus was a mere man and nothing more, Jesus would have clearly have been off his rocker. And quite frankly, so would John for writing this down. This would have been blasphemous. Because as I'm, I'm hoping, uh, my intention is, is by looking at these repeated passages, you would see the apostles are not making any, any um, uh, they don't want any confusion over the matter. Jesus is God in the flesh. And if he was just a good teacher, if he was a great teacher, if he was a great prophet, that's great. But to say he is God is something else entirely. John 8, 23, he was saying to the Jews, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And you'll, you'll recall that um, I think he says this in John's gospel i know he says it uh does he say it in marks oh well he said what does he say to Pilate? 
My kingdom is not of this world. John eight fifty eight. after claiming that, G, that Abraham rejoiced, that he was glad to see Jesus' day, he says, truly, truly, and, and, and the Jews, you know, they don't miss that. They go, wait a minute, whoa, back the train up. You're not even 50 years old. What, you are a madman. You, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham, and he says this, Truly, truly, before Abraham was born, I am. Ego eimi, that is the Greek rendition of Yahweh in the Old Testament. So not only is Jesus saying yes, he is claiming the direct personal covenant name of God. And, And this is not missed on the Jews. Verse 59, therefore... Because of what you just read, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. They're not playing dodgeball. But Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. And, and this actually happens again in John 10.33. Jesus says, well, for, for what good work? What, why, what, what are you going to stone me for? And he, they say in John 10.33, for good works we don't stone you, but for blaspheming because you being a man... Make yourself out to be God. Mark, let's go back to Mark for a second. Mark fourteen sixty one. Jesus has been arrested. He is at an illegal tribunal before the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the high priest after hours of unsuccessfully finding an accusation against Jesus that will stick. The, the, the high priest goes for the jugular. He, go, he asks the question that he knows Jesus will, will answer. Mark 14:61 Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And he's so pious, he doesn't even say God's name. Are you the son of the blessed one? Jesus says, again, ego eimi, I am. Not only saying yes that's affirmative, he's claiming the title of God. And then the high priest in verse 63 you know, he tears his cloak and he says, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. Again, you've heard him claim to be God. And the next time anyone here hears someone say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Rubbish. And you know, and you know why. All the Gospels, and yes, they take their own unique approach, and themes, and they have their different emphases and their different details in the things that Jesus did and said, all the Gospels nevertheless make it clear that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And I would deposit to you that anyone who reads the Gospels and doesn't walk away with that conclusion has utterly missed the boat. The Old Testament said it. Where? Well, Genesis 3.15 said that the seed of a woman would crush the, the, head, the serpent's head. Last time I checked, seeds, women don't produce seeds, so there is, there is a implication that there is something supernatural about the coming seed. Psalm 110, Yahweh said to my Lord, said David. David is speaking, is addressing his son as his Lord, that is unheard of in, in uh, patriarchal hierarchies. 
Mike, we saw uh, over Christmas, Micah 5, 3, his days, his, his comings and goings are of old. His days are from eternity. So the Old Testament does say it. The epistles, the, the, the gospels proclaim it loud and clear. And the epistles reaffirm it. Jesus is God. Now, what, what, what relevance, what, what, what is the point of all this? I want you to see then how utterly, astoundingly humbling and amazing it is that Jesus being God, being the Creator, being the one who crafted the cosmos and the supernova, the one who not only created the sun and stars, not only hung them and put them in place, and also knows each and every one of them by name. I don't know how many stars uh, we have been counted by now. Gajillions. And he knows them all by name. That same creator would stoop down to our level. To the level of his creation. Not, and not just the level of his creation, but he would come down to the level of his creation who has utterly marred his name. And not just visit us, but he would dwell among us. John 1.14 says that, that uh, this, when he says that he dwelt among us, it's the word for tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He took up residence. He pitched his tent among us and resided with us as though he were one of us. Being God, being this pre-existent one, before his incarnation, before his tabernacling among us, his human gestation was not the beginning of his life. His birth was not his first exposure to the world. His, his first glance, when, when he was a young boy, the first time he looked up and he saw the stars, this was not the first time that he saw the fact, or the first time that he could attest to the fact that the heavens declared the glory of God. Jesus was fully God, and, 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 and mark this, yet he didn't consider his deity as something, Philippians 2 says, he didn't consider it robbery. He didn't consider the fact that he was God. He didn't consider the, the, the things that he was entitled to as God. Something that he had to clutch onto for, for fear of being taken from him or for fear of being deprived of him. There are things, I'm sure I could if, if I were to ask you or do enough probing, there are things that I could find out about you and you could find out about me. Things that, that we value. Things that we hold to tightly. And, and as soon as we think that they might be taken away, our grasp on these things tightens. 
and we become defensive, even irate, even touchy and grumpy and sinful even. Philippians 2.7 says, Jesus Christ didn't look at his rights and his privileges as God. As He didn't look at his deity like that. And so, and I think Paul, I think Paul had to think long and hard, what word do I use to describe God putting these things aside? And so he, he chooses the word he emptied himself. And it's the same word that we would use if you had a glass of milk and you were to pour it out and there's no longer any milk in the glass. And, and, and that's not to say that Jesus actually emptied his deity. He's not divesting his actual deity. He did not at any point cease to be God or degrade in his godness. Again, remember everything he did and said to, to prove in the Gospels, that he is God in the flesh. But rather, he emptied himself by adding to himself. He added to himself the lowly nature of man. He added to himself the lowly position of a slave. He added, he emptied himself, God emptied himself, by taking on human flesh and human nature. Not just that, he, Paul goes on to say in Philippians 2 that he, he didn't just appear as a man and, and, and appear in the likeness of men, but he, he took on the form of a bondservant. You know, what, you know what word that really is in the Greek? Slave. God, the Master, the Lord, became a human slave. And that's not all. Verse 8, Philippians 2, verse 8, he humbled himself in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, Paul says in Corinthians 1, 23, that we preach Christ crucified. And you know what? A crucified Christ. A crucified Christ is a stumbling block to Jews and to, to Greeks. It's utter foolishness. To, to preach, to say, to insinuate that God Almighty, the Master, the Lord, became a human slave. The Jew says, I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't even. The Greek says, that's, that's idiotic. Don't waste my time. That's foolishness. Here's what makes the lowliness of his incarnation so wonderful and why Christ is so worthy of our affection and gratitude. He did all that. He put aside his rights to be immediately obeyed and to be worshipped and adored he put aside his rights and prerogatives as God to be honored and to be served by every living creature without the slightest hint of hesitation or reservation. He left, its dom he left his domain with, with its comforts and its infinite glories and its infinite splendor 
where he got everything he deserved at once, and he came down here in condescension to a sin-cursed earth. And the master put on the apron of a slave, and he served men. He taught men. He led men. He comforted men. He healed. He built, he built people up. He interceded for. He suffered. He bled. He died for men. God Almighty took upon himself human nature so that he could do these things for us. There is no greater condescension from so great a height to, so, to such low a depth than this. Think about this. In human flesh, God suffered. God suffered hunger. God suffered thirst. He suffered temptation. In Christ, on a hot summer day, God was sunburned. On a cold winter night, God, God was chilled to the bone and his legs trembled as he tried to sleep. In Jesus, God got exhausted. So exhausted he could sleep in the stern of a boat during a storm. In Jesus, God suffered theft and betrayal from Judas. Remember, Judas would help himself to the treasury box when he thought no one was looking. Well, God was looking. In Christ Jesus, God suffered abuse and mockery and rejection of men. He was ridiculed. He was scorned. He was scourged. He was spit upon. He had his head beaten with a stick. And he was crucified. And that's, that's a sermon in and of itself. All the all the um, physiological and psychological traumas that go along with crucifixion. Need I remind you, the Romans knew a thing or two about torture. God took upon human nature so that he could go through all of that trauma for you. But add to that the trauma that is infinitely greater. If you have a biblical understanding of sin... Enduring the hot, righteous wrath of God's justice for sin far exceeds anything else that I just told you about. Need I remind you, the man suffered, the man was so stressed in the garden that his capillaries burst and he sweat blood because he knew what was coming and that was not because of the scourging or the lashing or the beating or the spitting he with trepidation was looking towards those three hours of absolute abject pain as he bore the burden of sin the master became the servant he descended and having descended Having gone through all that, he is 
he, he, he was in a, now in a unique position to become our representative, to become, as Paul says in Romans 5, our second Adam, so that he could defeat our greatest foes, sin, death, and the devil. And having defeated these foes, having, having achieved victory over them, he, is, he was now in a unique position to take spoils from their defeat and take spoils from that victory and distribute from among those spoils gifts to his people that he has likewise acquired due to his victory. The reason, my friends, the reason, this is Paul's argument, the reason why Jesus can give the gifts he's given and is giving and will give to the church until the time he comes back for us, the reason, the grounds for him giving the gifts is ultimately because he voluntarily gave up his place in heaven to do that very thing. He voluntarily set all that aside and he came down here and he suffered and he bled and he died so that he might win our battle and in turn give us gifts. Being a victor, the the victor in a fight that we could never fight. He set aside so much. That is what Paul wants you to see. Consider what he set aside for you. He became so lowly. He who deserved to be served so much, himself served so much. And he suffered so much. This should blow us away. Some of us have, have maybe you've seen those video, or, um, those reality TV shows where the, the guy at the very top, the CEO, for a day or two or three, he goes down to the to the bottom levels, and he, you know he, he uh, the the CEO of the post office uh, works in the mail room for a day. There have been several episodes or shows like that. I don't I have no idea what they're called. This blows the best episode in whatever show that is. This condescension blows that show those shows out of the stinking water. Again, there has never been a greater condescension from such great a height to such low a depth than God Almighty taking on human flesh to suffer and die an ignominious death for sinners like us. Now as we finish up our look at verse 9, Paul says that he descended into the lower parts of the earth. And there's a line that in the Apostles' Creed that repeats this. And, and maybe if you grew up um, in, the, in a Roman Catholic church or um, maybe a more liturgical church and you've, you've, you've been taught that Jesus went to hell and he accomplished some kind of spiritual work there. 1 Peter 3.19 does say that he went to preach to, to the spirits that are now in prison. Um, some say that, that, that he was... Um, that there, that there could have been additional atoning, additional spiritual work he needed to do, uh, perhaps more suffering that he needed to, needed to endure after he died on the cross. That, that, none of that is what Paul is talking about here. None of that is what Paul is talking. None of that is what Paul is talking about here. 
because there's nothing in the context about angels. There's nothing in the context about demons or hell. This is what Paul is saying. Jesus's right and generosity in giving gifts is magnified when you consider where he began and where he went. His right and generosity in giving gifts is made large. It is magnified. It is, it is seen for what it is when we see how great the condescension was and what it cost him. That's what Paul's doing. And this is the lowliness of his dissension, which makes grander the loftiness of his ascension. The loftiness of his ascension, verse 10. Now how... Oh dear me, I didn't start the timer. Was that a nervous laugh? Okay. Okay, how high up did Christ ascend? How high up did Christ ascend? Well, I want you to see how emphatically Paul says Christ is exalted. He, He is not merely exalted up to heaven as though he is fellows or equals with the angels. Paul says that he is exalted above heaven, but 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 not quite. He's not just exalted above heaven, he is exalted above all the heavens. Now, what are all these different heavens? Well, commentators have fits over over explaining what exactly this means. Um, some say that the earth's atmosphere is the first heaven, the realm of space that is beyond that. Uh, what we call space is second heaven. And then what we associate as when we hear or say heaven is the third heaven. And some non-biblical Jewish works say that there are, even, there are even seven heavens. There was a show on the CW, I think, called Seven Heavens. I have no idea if that's where this came from. But that's not the point here. Paul's not talking uh, about the layout or the demographics of heaven. This is not an astronomy course. Paul isn't. Paul's not interested. He has no intention on telling us how many heavens there are or what their relationship is to each other or, or which heaven is above the other heaven. His point is this. And he, he's, he's emphasizing something. Whatever heavens there are, however many there are, whatever spheres whatever levels of authorities and dominions that, that you can ever imagine, which a first century um, Ephesian would, know, would, would believe that there were many heavens, there were many spheres of authorities, there were many heavenly places. Whatever heavens you can imagine, Paul's point is this, the Lord Jesus has been, exalt, has been exalted above them all. Above them all. And not just above them all, Far above them all. Whatever, whatever powers, whatever authorities that you can imagine, and whatever, whatever exists outside of your knowledge. Like there are things that, are, that exist and we have no clue they exist. Whatever things you can imagine, whatever things you have, whatever things you have no clue about. Whatever else is out there, Nothing, absolutely nothing, comes even remotely close in terms of power, in terms of honor, 
in terms of might, in terms of absolute sovereign rule, than the place and power that Jesus Christ has been exalted to and currently enjoys. Whatever heavenly realms exist, Paul, Paul's point is this, our Lord Jesus Christ is supreme over every single one. How good it is to know that and be reminded of that when even the lesser authorities start causing problems. There is not one cubic yard of cosmic space or heavenly space that is outside the absolute sovereign rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. That'll treat. Now notice Paul's explanation for why this has happened. What, what, what was the goal of his exaltation? For what end? For what purpose? For what reason was Christ exalted for? He says in verse 10, He who descended is Himself. Also He who ascended far above all the heavens. Here's the purpose clause. So that, this is why, so that He might fill all things. Christ descended so that He may ascend, so that He may fill all things. What does this look like? Well, here's an imperfect picture. When the whirlwind that was Alexander the Great conquered the known world and subjugated people after people after people, you know what you had? You had a known world that spoke Greek, looked Greek, sounded Greek, presumably ate Greek, and so on and so forth. And in many ways, in an imperfect, in, a, uh, in an imperfect analogy, you could say that the that Alexander filled the world with Greek. In a, in the same way, but in, in a far better way, Christ has conquered over his foes, and he has taken his, their captives as his own, so that Christ's language and Christ's culture and his likeness and his values, and his glory might fill all things. Now this begins with his people who are called in his name. It expands as they are given gifts to use and good works to walk in. These things magnify the name of Jesus. These things magnify his power, his grace, his wisdom, his might. And this reminds us, my friends, this reminds us that the ultimate goal of our salvation isn't that we would have a wonderful and happy life. The goal of our salvation is in our satisfaction. It's not our fulfillment. It's not our joy. It's really not about us. And these things, these things are byproducts. They are, they are a part of the package, but the goal of our salvation is that the glory and the power and the wisdom and the might and the rule of Jesus Christ might be seen and known through you. Christ saved you. And he, he saved you and, and ascended so that He might be known, that His power might be known through you and through your marriage. 
through your kids, through your repentance from sin, through your good works, through your public testimony among your neighbors and your co-workers and your community. Jesus Christ saved you so that he so that his grace and his power and his wisdom might be known through your involvement in the local church, especially as your gifts are brought to bear, especially as you walk in the good works prepared for you. Jesus Christ saved you so that he might be seen through you. Just as I prayed earlier, Jesus Christ is being made known through the suffering of Pastor James Coates. People are being drawn to the name of Jesus. People are, are, are believing, coming to believe in the name of Jesus when they see that, the tr- that there is something to what this man professes. Jesus saved us so that all of these things, his wisdom, his might, his rule, his power might be seen and known as we as individuals function as members of the body. God saved you to glorify himself. That's the big picture. Practically speaking, Christ filling your life. Practically, it's walking in obedience to his commandments. What does it look like for Christ to fill our life? Well, read the second half of the book. He gave us gifts. He did all these things so that he might, so that not we, he might fill all things. And, and you've, got to, you've got to appreciate this. How good is it that he's the one filling all things? Be, be glad. Rejoice that a normal man, that a mere man, that a non-God man is not the one that God has appointed to fill all things. You know what? Men screw things up. Men screw things up. It is so good that Christ Jesus fills all things because he is so extraordinarily different than normal men. You know what normal men do when they're given power? You know what normal men do when they are entrusted with, with, with positions of power and the resources of others? Inevitably, they turn those things, that, that the power given to them, the positions given to them, the resources entrusted to them. Inevitably, sooner or later, those things are turned back upon themselves. And more often than not, they are turned sinfully upon themselves. Men are naturally self-seeking. We naturally pursue self-interest. We naturally love who? Ourselves. The, the golden rule, treat others. Uh, Jesus said, love your neighbor as what? As you love yourself. Do you notice that there is this implication, this presupposition? You already love yourself. The problem is, is you don't love others as much as you love self. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we entrust power to men and they sooner or later 
sinfully utilize that power from self for self-advancement. My friends, Jesus Christ is not like normal men, and that is a good thing. He enjoyed such an unparalleled position of power in heaven, and yet he willingly set that aside to come as a slave and serve. And serve he did. Now, what can we what can we take from this? Two things. Appreciate the descent of the Lord Jesus. Appreciate the descent. Appreciate him not for being a good man. Worship and esteem and honor him the Lord Jesus Christ, not for being a good man, not for being a good teacher, not for being a good prophet, but for being God who stooped so low for you. Praise Him for stooping so low and taking your burdens upon Himself and paying for your sins when He didn't have to. Praise Him for that. That's one takeaway. The other would be to appreciate His ascension. Philippians 2, 9, I believe, says that for, for this reason He has been highly exalted above every other name. Appreciate His exaltation. Recognize, confess, and proclaim His Lordship. And I would also add, appreciate the gifts that he's given us. And we're going we're gonna to touch on this in the coming weeks. Considering who it is that has given you your gifts, that should, that should say something about, that should influence how you esteem and value what he has given you. When you consider who it is that has given you the gifts, that should say something about how we are to respond to the gifts we've been given let's close and then we have communion lord jesus thank you so much for humbling yourself for stooping so low for having such a lack of concern over what you were entitled to and yet and 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 saw our need, saw our misery, saw our plight, and so graciously responded. May we never lose sight of this. May we have hearts that respond in affectionate loyalty to our Lord who has given himself to us and for us.